Next Chapter Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to every episode of Black History for Real early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's no longer black and white today. It's black white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, you name it, that's competing for those same jobs. And so the competition is fierce. You know, I think we are sitting with the fact that we have left some people behind in our prosperous economy. It is really hard to think about, well, how do we foster more socioeconomic integration, right? I see it as tremendous opportunity for us to sit in positions to create a new place. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear, but it's like just the South got something to say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our New South, a podcast series presented by the Levine Museum of New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. Hi, my name is Dr. Robert Green II, coming to you from Clafton University, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Blackstone, coming to you from College Park, Maryland. And we truly thank you for tuning in today. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing the concept of the New South and how it's evolved with academics, activists, and creatives. We'll investigate the South, asking questions of our expert guests in key areas like socioeconomic mobility, voting rights, and discriminatory practices that have shaped the South over the decades leading up to today's challenges. We thank you for joining us on this journey and ask that you please tell your friends and family about us. Follow the show, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Okay, let's get to today's episode of the show. Today's episode of Our New South focuses on socioeconomic mobility and the challenges in the South to create a more equitable society for all its residents. The 2014 Chetty study ranked Charlotte as 50th among the top 50 U.S. cities in providing economic mobility for its residents, while many other rising southern meccas also ranked poorly. We will also discuss the key drivers to economic mobility and some of the actions being taken in the South to spur this mobility. But before we get to our guests, I would like to ask Dr. Robert Green to provide us with some brief insight on economic social mobility in the South. And Robert, I got to tell you that we're talking about the New South, but I read that Chetty report, and I'm wondering if we're still not talking about some vestiges of the Old South. No, that's a great point, Kevin. And I read the report too. I can't help but think that maybe this New South idea is even more complicated than any of us imagine. Um, Certainly, we have not 
quite gotten rid of those vestiges of slavery, segregation, and so forth. But I think the good news is that this episode provides some roadmaps for how we can fix this in the next generation or so. So for our listeners, don't lose hope. Just listen to our podcast. Keep hope alive, like that South Carolinian once said. (laughs) Precisely. In 2014, an academic study on socioeconomic mobility was released by a team of scholars from Harvard and Stanford universities. Headed by economist Raj Chetty, the report, which came to be known as the Chetty Report, identified which American cities led the way on mobility across generations for socioeconomic uplift. In the report, Chetty and his team wrote, quote, The U.S. is better described as a collection of societies, some of which are lands of opportunity, with high rates of mobility across generations, and others in which few children escape poverty, end quote. The final section of the report, however, was what caught the attention of the citizens of Charlotte. The Queen City came in 50th out of 50 cities in intergenerational mobility. In fact, the bottom three cities were all southern cities, Raleigh, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Since the report was published, civic, business, and political leaders in Charlotte have all taken steps to respond to the report's conclusions and to chart a way forward. As part of the reaction to this report in 2020, the Brookings Institute released How We Rise, How Social Networks in Charlotte Impact economic mobility. What the authors discovered was alarming. Social networks, so critical to this idea of economic and social mobility, were often stratified by race in Charlotte. The report stated, quote, social networks are strongly homogeneous across demographic categories, especially by race. Black respondents have largely black networks. Most striking, most whites have networks composed only of other whites, end quote. Also, the growing population of Latino immigrants to Charlotte was not immune to this dilemma. Quote, the network of Latinos are also small and relatively narrow and particularly reliant on family members. Of all the groups we analyzed overall, Latinas, Hispanic women, are the least networked in Charlotte. End quote. Various initiatives in Charlotte and throughout the South are trying to tackle the underlying issues that have led to such massive socioeconomic inequality in the region. Organizations such as the Sycamore Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, are trying to come up with nonpartisan solutions to these issues to bring Southerners of all backgrounds together for shared prosperity. In Charlotte itself, the organization Leading on Opportunity is also sponsoring efforts and working alongside city leaders to better the opportunities for all in Charlotte. While the New South idea has always been one of economic growth and prosperity, the modern version of that idea is also filled with men and women ensuring that such prosperity touches all and not just a few. Our first guest today is Sherry Chisholm, the executive director of Leading on Opportunity, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Leading on Opportunity is a nonprofit organization that supports the improvement of economic mobility in Charlotte using strategy, policy, and data. Sherry earned her graduate degree from Harvard and is part of the new reverse migration of Black families who are moving from northern cities back to the South. Our New South welcomes Sherry Chisholm. 
Well, um, I always like to start off by asking our, our guests to introduce themselves to our, uh, to our listeners. Uh, you know, where you're from, where you're at, and what it is you do. So I am Sherry Chisholm. I'm the executive director of Lead In On Opportunity in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Lead In On Opportunity is charged with very simply maintaining Charlotte, Mecklenburg, the county we sit in, our commitment to economic mobility for all residents, um, and especially those who have been systematically marginalized. And so our work looks much like that of a nonprofit through the services that we provide to funders and to nonprofits who've been committed to this work for the long haul. We hope to bring some clarity and alignment to that work. And um, before um, relocating to Charlotte in um, September of 2020, I actually was located in my hometown of Detroit, Michigan, which is where I was born and raised and um, picked up a lot of the skills that I bring to this work today. Great. And so what was the uh, attraction to move from the Motor City all the way down to to Charlotte? Yeah. What brought you there? It, it, twofold. Um, one, my family migrated to Detroit as a part of the Great Migration. So my mother's side of the family is from rural northern Alabama, a town called Florence, Alabama, just outside of Huntsville. Um, migrated in the 40s and 50s for economic mobility when there was no language around what that meant, um, but in hopes of really escaping the harsh realities of the Jim Crow South, where they wanted employment and education for themselves and for their children. And so my grandfather came to Detroit and worked for the auto industry for Ford Motor Company. My grandmother was a teacher's aide at the time. They now call that a paraprofessional. And the next generation, my mom went on to become a teacher, retired as an elementary school principal, and then I spent a lot of my career leading large urban school districts. So serving as a chief of staff or chief strategy officer, working in administrative roles at the district. So generation after generation, the risk that my grandparents took was definitely paying off for my family in terms of economic mobility and access. And uh, it's no secret that the 80s hit Black folks hard. And that was um, no exception in Detroit when it came to corrupt policies, uh, violence, white flight, um, and in particular, drug abuse hit my family pretty acutely. And so as much as Detroit had been a place of advancement, there was also some real struggle, know knowing that there's never a single story. Those two things existed together. And um, my husband wanted different for um, my daughter and I. And so we, as much as we are thankful for our roots as being hardworking middle Americans in Detroit, we sought um, refuge in the South. And so we came to Charlotte in hopes of continuing the legacy that our grandparents had set forth for us. And so we came in 2020. I was seven months pregnant. Y'all likely remember we were in the thick of the pandemic. I um, started a new job in a new place um, because we knew that we wanted better for our family. And I was really excited by the mission of Leading on Opportunity. Leading on Opportunity, I thought, was talking about some bold and progressive things that a community could do. And so I wanted to be a part of that community as someone who was a part of the work and then a resident who got to benefit from the changes we hope to make. What was your experience with the South when you were growing up? Did you ever make those family trips back to Florence, Alabama? And what was your notion of the South growing up? Oh, I have fond memories of riding Greyhound with my grandmother and sweet potato pie. <laughs> 
So I did, you know, like many, I, I would I joke sometimes and say, you know, if you've never been to Detroit, it's like Alabama with snow, especially for Black folks, because so many people, you know, would come from Alabama, uh, Tennessee, Georgia, some folks from Mississippi, up, you know, straight up 75 to the north. And our traditions didn't leave us. And our families, you know, took great risks, left families and traditions uh, behind in the south. And so my grandmother would go down south, as we called it, every summer. And she would take me and a couple other of my cousins with her on Greyhound. And we didn't do that. Then we would pack all of our worldly belongings into our car and drive down to Alabama to spend time with our family. And it did. It felt like such a different world than Detroit and also such a safe haven. You know, I have fond memories of going to the farm and feeding the cows or piling into a bed with my cousins and sharing that space together. That's incredible. Thank you so much for that. I, I think your your backstory really reminds our listeners of what the Great Migration was like, because I think on the one hand, we see that that phrase, Great Migration, and we think of people in the abstract, but you're talking about it in a very concrete way. And I love that description, Alabama with snow, talking about Detroit. I, I could certainly see that. And we're going to come back to it later on because that's, that's really fascinating material. But I want to latch on to something you said at the start of our interview today about socioeconomic mobility, right? And how the Great Migration of the 20th century is being driven by that. And the new Great Migration, we'll talk about a little bit later on, is also being driven by that too. But your work in Charlotte, you're talking about how important socioeconomic mobility actually is. So could you describe for our listeners what that actually is, number one, and what are the, some of the key drivers of this mobility, especially in a place like Charlotte? Really plainly, it's the idea that economically or financially, one generation is doing better than the one. Um, every generation, your family is doing a little bit better. So like I talked about with my family, my, my grandmother started as a teacher's aide. Next generation, my mom became a teacher. Generation after that, I was working in district leadership. So we were able to ascend to more financial gains, holds, maybe greater status in certain positions. And that is kind of the core of economic mobility. Each generation is making more financially. And while the definition is really simple, a lot goes into making that possible. In Charlotte, we've defined it as five things as we think about economic mobility for Charlotteans. That is college and career readiness, or really simply education. So what education pathways need to be available and how do you give folks access to jobs? Um, the next is um, early early care and education. So education starts really as far as um, way back with maternal health and pre-K and daycare options for um, children and their families. And then we also need to think about college and career readiness, early care and education, and child and family stability. So these are the, the safety net supports. Do you have safe and affordable housing? Do you have access to grocery stores? Um, is there access to healthcare that you need? So the foundational things that all individuals need. And then the two things that really excited me about the work um, were what we call our cross-cutting factors. So even if those three things are true for you in your life, the impact of segregation, um, so how you know policies have impacted you as an individual, or I would say racism, effect makes it more difficult for you to advance economically and then your social capital. So who you know. So very simply, who can get, do a favor for you? Who can get you access to the resources you need? Make it easier for you to advance economically. And so at Lead In on Opportunity, we consider all of those conditions or what we call the key drivers of economic mobility here in Charlotte. 
Fantastic. No, that's that's really important for our listeners to note because I, I think that it, it seems that we talk about this mobility in the abstract, but you're kind of laying it out in concrete terms. And to bring it again closer to home, because our show is very much about Charlotte's place in the New South, of course, you've referenced a lot in your work the 2014 Shetty Report, mm-hmm. which listed Charlotte as 50th out of 50 cities in this mobility. And you said, or you wrote, quote, while this was a wake-up call for some, it was an acknowledgement that many others have been waiting mm-hmm. for, end quote. Mm-hmm. Could you say a bit more about that quote, kind of unpack it for our audience? And to add to that, what did the Chetty Report really tell folks living in Charlotte about their own city? While the Chetty study for some was new information, for those who were living the realities that were identified in the academic paper, it was, well, finally, now I have the language, or now finally people are listening to what I've been experiencing. Like I started with my family. There was no job. There was no education for um, that they wanted for their children. And some chose to leave. And with that choice was also opportunity. And those others didn't have the opportunity to leave or didn't want to leave their homes. And so we're living the realities of the corrupt policies of the past that impact our conditions today. And so, you know, what the Chetty study said and us being ranked 50 out of 50 is the likelihood of you being born into poverty and dying in poverty is almost 100% here in Charlotte. And that was devastating news for a community that is seen as one of the fastest growing cities in the South. It is the financial hub second to New York. Uh, we have you know huge banks and headquartered organizations here. And people who move in here, like me, I have to say, who are highly educated, looking to as a place where they can buy homes, send their kids to school and thrive. And unfortunately, those opportunities are not available to the folks that live here. And those conditions are not new. Was that a surprising revelation for you, given that you just dropped in in 2020? You know, it's interesting. I think, and actually, y'all are the folks, first folks to ask me that question. I came here like everybody else. I was like, oh, here's like a thriving middle class Black community. There, It's a, a community that's growing in a different way than Detroit or Atlanta, where I spent most of my um most of my years, it was a place that I could like find my place, make my mark and grow along with the city. And I got here and, you know, anytime you're living in a place, you understand it in a different way. And I'll start by saying how grateful I am for the opportunities that Charlotte has provided me. And I am not outside of the realities that were identified in the task force report, the report that we developed as a result of the Chetty study. And so I am highly educated. I have you know, two degrees, one from an Ivy League institution, and in twenty, and my husband the same. So two income households, highly educated folks. In twenty twenty one, we could not buy a house, and I have been really honest with folks about that. You know, I, two hardworking folks, good credit scores, but we did not have anyone we could go to to ask for fifty thousand dollars to pay over market value for a home. We didn't, right? There was not. We don't come from generational wealth. We're one generation removed from poverty, and so. I think I share that because it was true for us and to remind folks that the community is not over there. It's not distant. Like we are living the realities of that, even folks that we share boardroom spaces with. So tell us a bit about the work that you've been doing with uh, your organization, especially, and I have to say, I'm very intrigued by the opportunity compass Mm -hmm. that your organization has developed. So tell us a bit about some of the work you've been doing in Charlotte 
and especially how this Opportunity Compass is trying to really showcase the data that you've been collecting these last few years. So when I came to Charlotte, it was about four years into the life of leading on opportunity. And so folks had been working hard well before then with a commitment to economic mobility through funds and nonprofit direct service. And they said, Sherry, we don't need another nonprofit, right? We have a bustling community of nonprofit providers who've been doing good work and have been understanding this for a long time. But we need you know, a tool to help us move past talking about this to holding us accountable um, to the progress that we hope to make. And then also, if I'm really honest, coming out of the pandemic, our country was pretty obsessed with dashboards. So we needed a dashboard for everything, right? Like, how do we count, measure, keep track of what's happening? And so there was a real call for a dashboard at the time to do that around economic mobility. Chetty had come out with his study and said he wasn't doing another study. So we will never know based on his measurements if we move from 50 to 48 to 13. And actually, we saw that as an opportunity to define success for ourselves. Teddy and his team at Opportunity Insight said that their their goal was always to use this big data to inspire action. And the solutions very much so live with those who are most proximate and place-based solutions. And so that's the goal of the Opportunity Compass, to hold us accountable to what we said we wanted to do through data. And the point that I want to make sure to lift up and also also through community perspective. It holds both of those things. We just use numbers to do it. And our hope is that that moves us as a community past conversation, which we do really well, to specific areas of actions and then agreed upon outcomes for success. And so we launched the Compass at the end of 2022. It's been adopted by our nonprofit community. We have a CEO roundtable called the Charlotte Executive Leadership Council, which um, holds, I think, over 30 of the most prominent CEOs and small business owners. They've adopted that as their tool of success. And now as we move into 2024, we are working on a, a project to figure out how do we assess what's been done, identify the gaps, and then create some collective um, solutions to fill those gaps with um, programming and funding. Absolutely. No, that's that's a really important point to to get into. And I, I suppose my follow-up to that would be in, in your work with your organization, how has history played a role in terms of getting people to think more holistically about the data you're collecting? Because again, I'm looking at the opportunity compass and it's an incredible tool. I'm I'm learning more as I'm looking at it right now. But how is that history, again, just getting folks to understand that history of Charlotte of North Carolina, how does it play a role in how they're thinking through future policy options? Well, Chetty's data was based in um, data from the, the early 80s. So it's already historical. So it was looking at what was going on in the early 80s that had led to the outcomes that we see today. So it kind of forced us to look at some things of the past that have led to impacts today. And in that, it, especially at the time, Charlotte was a very black and white community. It was. It's changed quite significantly now to have a much um, larger immigrant population. Almost a third of our population um, is foreign born. Uh, but at the time, it was very black and white. And so, and it was some, some challenging things we had to face around that. Things I've already called out around policies and redlining and all the things that y'all already know, and I'm sure many of the listeners do. And I am happy to say that as a result of the task force report, it was a commitment made by the community to look at what could we do that didn't exist, that needed to make things better, and then what conditions that we wanted to change that were currently true. And so we developed a plan called the 2040 plan. It's our, um, it 
Charlotte's commitment to equitable growth in the city. So if we know that housing is one of the foremost uh, pathways to building generational wealth, home ownership, what does it look like to create alternative forms of housing for folks who can afford to live in an area and buy uh, a single family home? But how can we commit to um, duplexes and triplexes within that area so that individuals can buy homes at lower prices, build wealth for their family? And also, because not only housing, but education matters, then send their children to schools in those areas to benefit from the education and the social capital that comes along with home ownership in diverse communities. And so your family left the old South. Mm-hmm. And now you are there with your budding family in what we have called the New South. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your definition of, of what you, you've returned to and what you're a part of? I think it's a, a combination of what I just shared. It's a community that is reckoning with its past while trying to make change now and for the future. It's facing a complicated history, sometimes a desire to move past it and other times a desire to hold on to it. And for me, you know, as I just stated, I see it as tremendous opportunity for us to sit in positions to create a new place. I don't know if I would say that we're in the New South. I think we're in the midst of transition, at least in Charlotte. Like we are definitely experiencing a shift in who's sitting in those positions of power. Charlotte, if y'all know anything about it, it, you know, is a community that said like five white men would get around a table and make decisions for the community. It really like, and that's like commonly known. And we see that table getting bigger and getting more colorful. And that excites me, but we're in, in the midst of that transition. In that case, then, what does a mature, fully adult New South look like, in your opinion, especially with growing, both growing rates of Black Americans moving back to the South and also growing rates of immigration? What do you think that mature New South looks like? I would hope that we would have the access to the things that we seek in the task force report. Like, I'm trying to think of something more provocative, but it's really that we have access you know, to the housing and education. And we no longer think, at least I grew up in the generation where access or proximity to whiteness was considered success, right? Like that you needed to leave your community, like my family did, um, your identity, your culture to access quality education to, you know, to be able to attain and maintain a job. And my hope with it in the New South is that, you know, those options would still be available to us, but that we've redefined through policy, through programmatic change, through systems change, where we're able to reclaim and own parts of our culture and still have access to the things that lead to economic mobility. I am very clear that the work that I do today is maybe not experienced by me, but hopefully by my daughter. And she will have her own burdens to carry, but hopefully I've set her up a little bit better to realize the dreams that she holds for herself. And my hope is that, you know, Charlotte and the New South and beyond would be able to demonstrate that for her and for others that come after us. You want your daughter to be a Southerner? She is. She was born in Charlotte. She's a Charlottean. A Charlottean. She is a Charlottean with two Detroiter parents. It's an interesting mix, but we're working on it together. <laughs> together. Well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, this Definitely. Was, this thank was a great you so chat. much. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. One more question. Mm-hmm. Boiled peanuts, no, yay no, or nay? No. No. <laughs> no. I can't do it. <laughs> 
Our next guest is Brian Strasley, the executive director of the Sycamore Institute based in Nashville, Tennessee. The Sycamore Institute exists to help policymakers, the media, and the public understand complex issues that affect and connect Tennesseans' health and prosperity. Brian attended the University of Florida and is a lifelong resident of the South. Our New South welcomes Brian Strasley. So, Brian, I'm Kevin, coming to you. Uh, Kevin, how are you? Good. Coming to you uh, live and in person from uh, College Park, Maryland, University of Maryland. And that's Robert coming to you from uh, South Carolina. Robert, nice to meet you. So, as we get started here, um, and I just gave you our introduction, where are you from? Where'd you go to school? So, uh, I grew up in the Atlanta area, uh, left at the age of 18, went off to college at the University of Florida in Gainesville, uh, spent eight years in Washington, D.C. after that, and then have been in Nashville for a little over eight years now. So uh, my life has kind of been a tour of the South, I guess you could say. So you are a Southerner. I am, yep. And when I say you are a Southerner, what does that mean to you? Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, born and raised and, you know, you sort of, soak in some of the, the cultural things that, uh, you know, just growing up as a kid. I mean, you know, I think generally we tend to be some friendly, approachable folks, uh, tend to kind of like to do things our own way and uh, maybe get a little bit prickly when uh, folks from other other regions uh, might, you know, have uh, somewhat snobby opinions of us. Okay. All right. And so how did you get involved in the work that you are doing now that got you appointed to uh, the position that you have now at the Sycamore Institute? Yeah. Well, so like I said, I spent eight years in D.C. I worked in Congress for five of those. Um, and, you know, after that, I'd, I kind of got tired of, um, you know, red team. I, I worked for Republicans in Congress and just got to the point where I, you know, always having to wave the flag for your team and <clears throat> be against, you know, the other folks. Uh, just starts to grate on you and wear on you for, after a while. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was, when we moved to Nashville um, and I, I saw this opportunity to come work for this, what was then a really brand new organization, the Sycamore Institute, and uh, hadn't really done much of anything, but there was a lot, of, there was information about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And that was this source of credible, reliable, impartial information and analysis on really important policy issues uh, at the state level and the local level in Tennessee. And that just really attracted me. You know, um, our staff, our board of directors come from across the political spectrum. And what kind of sets us apart from a lot of think tanks is that we don't advocate. We don't take positions on things. We don't tell you what to think. We help you think. Okay. And so what does the Sycamore Institute, if you were to hang its shingle outside, what would it say to the to the public about what it is you all do and what you're interested in? So essentially, we are we're an independent, nonpartisan policy research center, and what we do at its essence is equip civic leaders across Tennessee with data-driven resources to identify, understand, and solve challenges. And we do that, like I said, in an impartial way. And what are those biggest challenges right now facing Tennessee in particular and the South in general? Well, you know, I don't know that it's specific to Tennessee. Um, you know, we, uh, I mean, I live in Nashville. Our staff is based here. Um, and, you know, Nashville is kind of a, a healthcare industry capital. Uh, and yet folks, you know, our population as a whole is generally, you know, less healthy than um, 
the country at large. We've got a lot of really great things going on economically. Um, but then there's also some folks that, you know, are maybe at risk of being left behind by the growth uh, that we have. And so I think the challenge really is, you know, what, no matter what your political you know, persuasion is, I mean, at the end of the day, we're trying to figure out how can we help folks in Tennessee thrive? How can we all do better? And why have you focused in on health care as a cornerstone of that of that policy and that work? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we work on a lot of different issues, you know, public finance, health, uh, financial security, some criminal justice, education kind of stuff. Uh, and, and what ties it all together for us is just this question of like, what does it mean for Tennessee to thrive? Uh, you know, like I said, the, we understand that, you know, while we, we provide data-driven information and analyses, but like people are going to come at that with different values and, and sort of prior beliefs. And so even if you, uh, you disagree before you consume our information and you may still disagree afterwards with somebody, but hopefully you'll disagree better. But the, the broad sort of strokes that we try to the frame, you know, that we try to put around our work is looking at what is it that we can all agree for the most part that we want. Right. And, and, and so these are things that, you know, good health is obviously one of them, physical and mental health. You know, I think everybody generally wants a sense of belonging to uh, the people in the world around them, your family, friends, uh, your community. Everybody kind of wants to be able to meet your basic needs to, you know, stock away a little bit for the future and, and, and you know, be doing well economically. And, and so that's that financial security and prosperity piece. And, and really, the last thing is that I think most folks want to be able to feel like they are, are making a positive impact on their little patch of the world, right? So sort of life satisfaction and fulfillment and, and you know, character. So all these things that I've mentioned, you know, there's research about like what it takes for human flourishing, right? And those are all kind of parts of it. But when we distill it down, we feel like there's those four basic elements that we want that are the roots of a thriving Tennessee. And that's good health, financial security, that uh, sort of satisfaction, fulfillment, strong character, and um, the family, friends, community, that connection with people. Right. No, those are some really good points, Brian. And I'm glad you brought those up. And this is actually a really good segue to uh, my question to you about not just what the Sycamore Institute does, but you mentioned a moment ago how uh, Nashville, the Tennessee area, has these specific challenges it's facing. Could you talk a bit about the South in general? Because it seems that numerous Southern cities have similar socioeconomic issues that are holding them back from their true potential. So could you talk a bit about why Southern cities in particular seem to do so poorly when it comes to various socioeconomic indicators? I will say, I think that this is a challenge that we see everywhere. Um, but there are there are some aspects of it that maybe are more acute uh, in the South. And so you know, we did um, some work a couple of years back looking at research on uh, economic mobility from uh, Raoul Chetty and his, his colleagues at uh, Opportunity Insights. And you know, it, it does stand out that the South generally, you know, they're looking down at like the census tract level and there, there's some pretty stark differences uh, between, you know, our region and, and some other regions of the country in terms of how likely you are to, you know, rise. Like if you were born in a lower income family, you know, what are the odds that as an adult you're going to be in a high income household? Uh, and those odds are a lot better in some places of the country than they generally are in, in much of the South and, and other you know, 
parts of the U.S. too. I, you know, I we're all sort of proud of where we come from, right? Uh, but there's two sides to every coin, right? So uh, I think that there can often be uh, an expectation that, like, well, we're you know, if you want to make it, you got to do it on your own. And there's some truth to that, but there's also some truth to the notion that, you know, the people and the institutions around us have a huge impact on, you know, the choices that are available to us and, and what choices we do make uh, and the, the opportunities that are available to us. The, the Opportunity Insights folks, they did kind of a follow-up study just, you know, a year or two ago that looked specifically at, like, what is it that, you know, we can pinpoint that has the greatest effect in terms of social capital on on economic mobility. And what they found was the, the biggest driver by far was friendships between people of different socioeconomic classes, right? So it's that, like, proximity to people who uh, maybe are in a different economic class, um, who maybe can open doors for you that, you know, folks wouldn't otherwise have open to them. And, you know, unfortunately, like just in our region, there's just not as much kind of socioeconomic integration. And, and some of that is a byproduct of uh, there, you know, historically being not a lot of uh, racial and demographic integration, right? So I think understanding these things can help us sort of figure out, all right, this is where we came from and, and where we are and then help us plot forward. Where should we go from here? So I think you've, done a lot today to talk about what the Sycamore Institute does, but in particular, you mentioned the Chetty Report. Um, could you talk a bit about how the Chetty Report has really influenced the work of the Institute writ large, number one? And number two, talk a bit about some of the challenges the Institute has faced in trying to spur more of the economic mobility you want to see in Nashville. I mean, for one thing, you know, I think that report is again like helps you see what are what are some of the the bigger picture upstream challenges that um you know people with like acute challenges or like you know neighborhoods where you know you've got intergenerational poverty uh for going back for you know ages and ages like what's the bigger picture that all of this is happening in and and you know at sycamore we our bread and butter is helping people look at like, let's get upstream of the acute problem and see what, you know, what's the water that we're swimming in. And so if we're trying to think about what kind of decisions can we make as communities, as uh, a state that will kind of help us grow in a way where more folks are brought along, you know, we're, we're talking about, again, like city planning, even to some degree, you know, where are we putting uh, parks, where are we putting housing, where are we putting, you know, uh, transportation connections? Like, these are all long-term approaches. Now, Brian, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you're basically a Southerner born and bred. Uh, grew up in Atlanta, went to Florida. Uh, I would almost call you Mr. SEC East just for those reasons. But I, I think Sorry as, as someone who had... <laughs> who has uh, grown up in the South and seen so much of the South, when you hear the phrase, the new South, what does that mean to you in particular? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, for me, and Grant, you know, I'm not quite 40 years old. So, uh, you know, my living memory goes back to the 80s, right? But I'm a student of history. Um, and 
and through working at Sycamore, I've obviously also kind of encountered a lot of uh, information about, you know, the economic history of our region. And, you know, I just like to read that kind of stuff. I think the, the big difference over maybe decades past, to me at least, is that the South is more and more becoming and has been for a while a destination of choice for businesses to locate here, for uh, people to move their families here to seek out a better life. And I mean, you look at the what are the fastest growing cities across the country? It's the Sun Belt, right? And some of that's you sort of climate. It's it's warm. Maybe you don't want to deal with you know cold winters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I do also think that like in general, broadly, like we can be a very welcoming, friendly, you know, to outsiders kind of people, and, and sort of bring them in and, and make them our own. And there's just opportunities here. Well, interesting. This is a good good conversation. Thank you for um, for doing this. In our closing reflections of today's podcast, we have two quotes that provide unique perspectives on the challenges Southern cities face in achieving economic mobility for its residents. The first quote comes from Dr. Lori Thomas, executive director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. And the second quote comes from Arthur Griffin, who serves on the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of County Commissioners. I think that was part of this awakening that the Chetty factoid of 50 out of 50 really challenged us with is, you know, we have this this um, city of pro- economic prosperity fueled in many cases by people coming in, by banking professionals, by people coming in. So we have that kind of image. There was this, this the, the, the reaction that, oh my gosh, this is Charlotte? We can't be 50 out of 50. And then we have a police uh, shooting and a killing of Keith Lamont Scott a mile from campus. Um, not a year after we get this, we're kind of sitting with this 50 out of 50 news. And, and people are like, no, this can't be Charlotte. We don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. We don't. And then the other piece, part of Charlotte, the, the part of Charlotte that understood that ranking, we're like, of course, you know, this is affirmation. This is absolute affirmation. And, um, you know, I think we are sitting with the fact that we have left some people behind in this, in our prosperous economy. What has changed? We've moved from the, the big warehousing jobs. Uh, we've moved from some textile jobs. We've moved more into technological, digital types of of workforce, and that has required a certain skill set that we are still struggling to try to to achieve. That skill set means a strong literacy background, a strong numeracy or math background, uh, being able to to think critically. You know, we were slow to turn the corner to make sure that. Our youngsters were ready for these jobs. And as a result, the jobs are here, but the, the skill set from a lot of African Americans that grow up here has not caught up with, with the skill set necessary for, for the workplace. And I 
got to say, Robert, you know, you suggested at the beginning of this that there was still some hope. And one of the things I gather from Lori and from Arthur is that one of the things that may distinguish the New South from the Old South is that it has acknowledged these problems and it's trying to fix them. You're absolutely right, Kevin. And I think it's worth noting that in the past, usually if the South faced these problems, it was forced to face them by, say, the federal government, by a mass Mm -hmm. movement, the civil rights movement. But I think what gives us hope, again, keeping hope alive here, from both Lori and Arthur is the idea that Southerners themselves are saying, these are the things we have to do. Let's go ahead and do them. These public-private partnerships, these organizations being formed across the South. At the very least, we know that this version of New South is going to try to make sure that no one is left behind. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and don't nobody want to hear it, but it's like this the South got something to say. Our New South is brought to you by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina thanks to the generous support of the Knight Foundation. Our New South is produced by Next Chapter Podcast. It's written and produced by Byron Hunter. The editor and sound designer is Kyle Murdoch. Executive producers are Jeremiah Tittle and Frankie Abbott. Our technical producer is Brian Douglas. With special thanks to Levine team members, Alexander Pinares, Karen Sutton, and Cliff Whitfield. Please follow the show. Subscribe rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Learn more at ncpodcast.com forward slash Our New South and museumofthenewsouth.org. Next Chapter Podcasts.